Welcome, and thanks for listening to the New Life Christian Ministries podcast. If you'd like more information about New Life or for more podcasts and other media, go to newlifexn.org. I don't remember the last time I was so excited about a series as I am about this month of March. It's not just a message series, but also started yesterday morning when we had the walk through the Bible Old Testament. As you saw, it's called Get a Grip. And what we're talking about is getting a grip on this book, the Bible, which uh, is the Word of God. At least that's what we stand on here at New Life. One of the, uh, one of the seven core values we have is we trust the Bible. And so we're going to be talking about a big picture overview of the Bible. We did that yesterday morning of the Old Testament and walked through the Bible. How many of you were at that yesterday? All right, quite a few. So then you know some things that you're going to share out loud, okay, with the rest of the group. Maybe all of you know it. I hope that all of you will know some of this stuff. But how many books are in the whole Bible? 66. How many in the New Testament? 27, right? How many in the Old Testament? 39, that's right. And I was going to divide it up a different way than we learned yesterday, but I like the way the guy yesterday divided it up. So of the 39 books in the Old Testament, the, the books that were written about stuff that happened before the time of Jesus, the, the first 17 of those books are called books of what? History, right. And the first five of those are called what? Pentateuch, yeah, the Pentateuch is the Greek word for five, actually, um, uh, five books, but five teachings. But the Hebrew word is Torah. That's what I was going to call it today. Uh, that's what the Jews call the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the law or the Pentateuch. And then the next 12 are books of history. And then in the middle, there are five books, which he told us yesterday are books of poetry, right? And those five books of poetry, I'm going to talk about next week, but I'm going to call them books of wisdom or Wisdom, literature, poetry. It's Job, Psalm, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And then the, the last 17 books of the Old Testament are what? Prophecy. And the first five are called the major prophets. And the last 12 are called minor prophets. And it's not because the major prophets are more important and the minor prophets are less important. The major prophets are just a lot more writing uh, uh, from the old my, major prophets. In fact, the book of Isaiah contains as much writing as all the 12 minor prophets put together. All the messages are important. And today, we're going to talk about the law and the prophets. But before we do that, I want to say something, two things actually, about the Bible. First one is, here at New Life, we do stand on the belief that those 40 authors um, that wrote the Old and New Testament that you saw up on the screen were led by the Spirit of God as they wrote. And so it's an inspired book. It's the Word of God. And uh, it's, it has a unified purpose that from Genesis, the first book of the Bible to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the purpose is to show us who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I know there are a lot of people in the world that don't believe that. But we stand on that here at New Life. That's the basic assumption. And we don't come to that assumption just because, you know, we've been sitting around on our brains all week, we sit, come to that assumption because we have actually studied from the book of Genesis through the book of Revelation over many times, in my case, and, and probably everybody on staff a number of times, and we've done research and, and, and two things. One is um, it has stood the test of time, and two, it's stood the test of experience. And so we're going to be talking a lot about that during this um, series, uh, but the second thing is the God that we find in the Bible is a God who is one God in three persons, Father, uh, Creator, 
Son, Jesus, who is the Redeemer, he redeems us from sin and death, and then the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of every believer, who gives us power and guidance and who sustains us in our life. And so with that basic overview, we're going to look at the Old Testament today, not all 39 books. We're going to look at the Law and the Prophets, which would be the first five books of the Bible, as well as the 17 that come at the end of the Old Testament and uh, we, we can't read every verse. Obviously, that would take a really long time. But we're going to read some representative samplings. And here's the reason why. It's our take-home point for today. For those of you who follow along on the outline, this will be the first thing in the outline. Those of you who are new today, the take-home point is the one point that I'm going to make that whoever's preaching makes it each week that we hope will take home and that we'll live it out in the week ahead, or at least reflect on it and, and consider how it impacts our lives. So the take-home point today is God reveals his big picture to us in the Law and the Prophets. So God has a big picture, and that big picture is revealed in the Law, the first five books of the Bible, and the Prophets. And so today I want to explain uh, sort of what that big picture is. And there are four statements. Again, they're in the outline if you want to uh, fill them in or you can just listen. But the first one is that God created everything. That's a very important truth. God created everything and he gave humanity the opportunity to rule over the earth with him. That's incredible. The second thing is that human beings rebelled against God. So we turned against God and uh, we brought sin and death to the world. The next thing, and this is so incredible, after we rejected God, he didn't reject us, but God established covenants with humanity to restore that broken relationship with us. And then finally, we find that in the Law and the Prophets, God promised blessings for obedience, and he also promised curses for disobedience. Now, uh, before we turn to the first passage that we're going to look at today, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are the great God of all that you are the high king above all kings, the great God above all gods. There is no one like you. We thank you today for your, for your son, Jesus. And even though we're going to talk about the Old Testament today, we know that he's going to show up because from cover to cover, um, Jesus is the central person in the scripture. God, we pray today that your Holy Spirit will open our hearts, our spirits, our souls, our lives, that we can not only hear information, but that you will transform us by it from the inside out, so that we can love you more deeply and serve you more faithfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your Bible and, uh, or a Bible app, if you would turn with me to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and the first chapter of the Bible, the first verse. And this is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. I've heard comedians make fun of that introductory passage of creation. Uh, they think it's way too simplistic. How in the world does God just say, speak and, and, and out comes light, just a word, or out comes, you know, a part of creation. It, it just seems too ludicrous to them. But I want to ask a question this morning. It's a very important question. If you were trying to explain creation to somebody who did not have the frame of reference of science, what would you say? 
If you were in a non-scientific age, what would you say? And if you did say it in a way that a physicist would understand it or a biochemist would understand it or a rocket scientist would understand it, why would that person write it down and remember it? Why in the world would somebody from such a primitive time and a primitive culture want to remember something that makes absolutely no sense from their frame of reference? Actually, what we read there in Genesis 1 is exactly the same thing that science says. Science says that there was nothing, and then there was something. The interesting thing is that science tells us that nothing comes from nothing. In other words, there's always a cause if there's effect. So if there's something, there had to be something that caused it, and yet science tells us that there was nothing, and it was added to nothing, and bang, there was something. That seems a little non-scientific. But what we read and what we just read in Scripture is this. There was never nothing. There was never a time when there was nothing. There was always something. Actually, not something, someone. There was always God. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were always there. And they are the ones who created the something, the universe and all that it contains. Now, the interesting thing is, a lot of times people say, well, there's no Jesus at creation. Well, certainly there is. But first of all, it says in the beginning, God, so there was God. The second verse says, the Spirit of God, so there's the Spirit of God, but where's Jesus? Well, we have to dig a little bit, but in Genesis, it says that God said, let there be light, and there was light. And if you go to the book of John, I know we're going to the New Testament for a moment, but we're going to use the Scripture to explain Scripture. In John chapter 1, Jesus is called the Word. In fact, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in John chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, All things were made through him, that is through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. So John tells us that Jesus made everything. We would expect that because God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus are one God, and so they all had to be there. When God said, when God spoke, what comes out of my mouth when I speak? Words. And so the word spoke, Jesus spoke, and creation came. And so I don't understand exactly how that happened. Nobody understands exactly how it all happened. But God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were there. And we see that they created light and they created, you know, the planets and the stars and all that. And then they created a particular planet, Earth. And in that planet, they created water and land and they created plants and animals. And ultimately, they created the crown of creation, human beings. Now, Interesting, if you read Genesis 1, if we turn over to verse 26, it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created us to rule over the earth with him. That's the plan, the great plan of God. We've talked about this actually during the kingdom series at Christmas is the great plan of God is to use us to rule over this planet with him. And and it says how it was going to happen. Two people were going to have more children, and then they were going to have more children and more children and more children. And ultimately, there would be a multitude of people who would disperse over the whole planet, and we would rule over all the other creatures that God had created. We would do that in a way that was loving and just and fair and all of that. That was the plan. It was a good plan because it was God's plan and God is good. But we blew up the plan. 
We are the ones who short-circuited the plan. In addition to creating human beings, God created other beings, spiritual beings. And God created angels. And God created an angel named Lucifer. He was the chief angel. And one time, one moment in, in, in history, uh, Lucifer decided he didn't want to be the best angel. He wanted to be God. And so he rebelled, and some of the angels rebelled against God and the other angels, and God cast them down to the earth. And that angel became a, the devil, and the rest of the angels that were fallen became demons. And so uh, there was an interaction between the first two people and some of these created beings, and we find about it in uh, Genesis chapter 3, starts in verse 1. And we're going to read what happened and how we decided no longer to follow God's purpose for our um, for our humanity, but decided that we would be in charge. Here's how it went. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Now we could invest an entire message or an entire series on that text alone. But the key points that we find from that text are that humanity decided to listen to the temptation to be God instead of just being like God. And so sin entered the world. That's what it's called when we reject God's plan for our lives and choose our own. It's sin. And when sin entered the world, death entered into the world. In fact, there were consequences of disobedience. And we find it in Genesis 3. If we had kept reading, what we would find is God told the woman that she would have pain in childbirth, multiple, multiplied pain in childbirth, and that she and the husband would have contention against each other. And also we find that the husband would have difficulty in his work, in his labor. But there's good news, even in the midst of this um, fall, it's called the fall from grace, the fall from a relationship with God, there's good news. And the good news is in uh, Genesis 3.15, which we're not going to read, but it says to the serpent, God said to the serpent, one day, one of the seed, one of the offspring of the woman is going to crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. And that's the first prediction of Jesus coming in the Old Testament in Genesis 3.15, and it says that what's going to happen is what did happen, that on the cross of Calvary, Jesus died. And through his death, which is a very uh, severe form of bruising, um, he crushed the head of Satan. Satan is defeated. He, he's a loser, as I say many times, but he's not a quitter. And, and so he's continuing to work, but he is defeated. And, and that was promised in Genesis 3.15. And as we look now, what's going to happen is God, after this separation, this broken relationship, God is going to start establishing covenants with people, agreements with people that are going to lead up to an ultimate covenant, which we talked about this morning during the Lord's Supper, the covenant between Jesus and us. But the, but the, the thing that we need to talk about before we get to these covenants, these reestablishing of the relationship that was broken between God and us is this. God is holy. God is, which means that he is perfect. And that means 
that he's set apart from anything that is not perfect. So from the moment that we engage sin, we set ourselves against God. This is a hard thing. Especially it's a hard thing for us who live in, in 2018 to wrap our, you know, our minds around because we live in a culture that basically says, if there is a God, this God has to be loving. This God has to be good. This God has to be nice. This God has to be pleasant. This God has to be how we picture God would be so that sort of everybody is included and nobody's left out. But that is not the picture of God that we see in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament for that matter. The picture of the God we see is certainly a God of love. God is love. It says that in the Word of God. But what we also see is God is holy and perfect, and He cannot look upon sin. And so the truth of the matter is, this is a hard truth, but we need to wrap our minds around it or we'll never understand the Bible. We'll never understand the Old Testament or the New Testament. And, and here it is. We are not basically good people. We are not basically good people. I know everybody wants us to think that. Everybody wants us to say that, that we're basically good. We need a little tweak here and there. If we had, you know, a, another self-improvement class or if we had a little bit more counseling, that we would be good people. And the truth of the matter is self-improvement is good and counseling is good. But it will never change our hearts, which is where we're broken. And so this is the thing that we must understand. There is no good news until we understand the bad news. And here it is. Our sin destroys our relationship with God and only he can restore it. Our sin destroys our relationship with God and only he can restore it. This is a very practical truth. It's practical for you if you're married. It's practical for you if you have a parent or if you are a parent. It's practical if you're going to go to school or work tomorrow. And here it is. The only person who can restore a relationship is the person who has been hurt. The only person who can restore a relationship is the person who has been hurt. If I offend you, I might bring you flowers or candy or I might take you to a movie or I might do all kinds of things to try to restore the relationship. But the truth of the matter is I can't do anything to restore the relationship. You have to say, Chris, I forgive you. And as soon as you forgive me, then the relationship can be restored. And that's what God did. In the cosmic sense, that's what God did. We offended God. We broke the relationship with God. And what God did is he came in the man Jesus Christ and he lived a perfect life, a life nobody here could live. And then he died on the cross to pay the penalty that we owed. And even as he was being nailed to the cross, remember what he said? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, I know I'm getting way ahead of the story. But the truth of the matter is, until we understand the bad news, that we are broken people, we are not basically good people, that we have sin in our lives and it needs to be taken away, and the only one who can do that is the one who we sinned against, we will never understand why God made covenants in the Old Testament and why God sent Jesus in the New Testament. So with that background, let's look at these. We're going to look at five covenants very quickly. We can't even go to all the scriptures that, that underline what they all are. But we'll, we'll talk about them and we will read a few. But the first covenant goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And it's an implicit covenant. In other words, you can't find a verse that says what I'm about to say. But we know what happened. Uh, the, the covenant that God established with Adam and Eve is clear because when God... Um, came to find Adam and Eve after they sinned. We, we were told that they were hiding because they were ashamed that they were naked and they had covered themselves with fig leaves. Now, God sends them out of the garden as part of their punishment, but God gives them clothing made of animal skins. 
Animal skins required the death of animals. There was a sacrifice made, a sacrifice made so that they could have the clothing. So what God was saying was, there will be sacrifice in order for you to continue to live. In other words, I'm giving you a second chance. I'm going to let you continue to live even though um, that this relationship is broken. Now, that broken relationship showed itself uh, very clearly uh, in immediate generations following Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain murdered his brother Abel. By the time we get to Genesis 6, human beings have become so evil that God decides to destroy humanity. And he decides to do that by a flood, but he does find a righteous man named Noah. And so Noah and his wife and Noah's three boys sons and their wives are saved through an ark. We've all read about it. Probably it's in Genesis 6 to 9 if you want to read about it and you never have. And in that situation, God saves this eight human beings and the land animals from destruction so that they can start over again. And at the end of the flood, when the waters dissipate and the Noah and his family come out onto the land, God speaks to Noah. And he actually explicitly states this covenant between Noah and and himself. He says this. It's found in Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 11. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I was in my mid-40s before I realized what that really meant. I mean, I know what a rainbow is, and it's beautiful. It has many colors, and after, you know, on a sunny day when it rains, we see the rainbow. But what I didn't realize is what God was saying is, I'm no longer going to hunt for human beings. He was talking about an actual bow, like a bow and arrow, you know? He was talking about that kind of bow. He put his bow up on the mantle, and he's no longer going to hunt in that manner for human beings, no matter how wicked we become. And so God said, I'm not going to destroy the earth. That's the covenant. But there's a better covenant coming. And it's the covenant that God established with Abraham. And the covenant with Abraham is a covenant that Abraham, who was originally called Abram, is going to be the father of a new and distinct people, the people of God. They would become known as the Israelites or the Jews or the Hebrews. They have several different names. But God chose Abraham. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 15. We start to read about the covenant in Genesis 12. But in Genesis 15, verses 5 and 6, we read this. And God brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So the covenant is for Abraham, who at the time is 90-ish years old, and who has no children to have descendants as many as the stars of the sky. It's an amazing promise. And uh, if you were 90 years old and your wife, you know, was past childbearing years and God made that promise to you, what would you do? But Abraham believed. And yesterday, Dr. Peterson, who was leading the walk through the Bible of Testament, said something I'm going to remember, I think, for the rest of my life. He said, God requires righteousness. God requires righteousness, right living. We have to do what's right. But he will accept faith. And we see that right here in Genesis 15, verse 6, right? We see Abraham believed God. And because of that faith, God considered 
Abraham righteous. Abraham wasn't righteous. You can read about Abraham's life in chapters 12 through the early 20s of Genesis, and you'll find out he did lots of things that weren't righteous. But, but God considered him righteous because of his faith, his trust. And that's the same thing that happens in our lives when we exchange our old lives in faith for the new life in Jesus Christ. Then God sees us as righteous. So the next covenant that we find is a covenant between God and Moses. And it's the most memorable covenant of the Old Testament. We read about it in the books of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. And what we find there is God who has established the people of Israel um, through Abraham and, and who has promised Abraham he would have all these descendants. When Abraham died, he didn't have that many descendants. But not long after Abraham died, all of his descendants, all 70 of them, went down into Egypt. It was, at first, it was to protect them from a famine. But over hundreds of years, it became a, 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 an enslavement. And during that time of slavery, the Israelites grew from 70 people to, to a couple million people. They truly were a people. And when they were freed by God from slavery in Egypt and they were wandering in the wilderness, God used Moses to establish the law. And the purpose of the law was to bring God's promises to the people for their obedience but also to tell them that they would be cursed for their disobedience. And as we read all of the laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, some of them seem very strange to modern ears, but the purpose of the law was to set the people apart. Not because they were better than the other people. In fact, God said they weren't. You know, Not because they were more numerous than other God said they weren't. But just because God was choosing a people and establishing them. And so he gave them rules, and they didn't follow the rules. In fact, most of the rest of the Old Testament is all about how the people didn't follow the rules and what the consequences were. But we do find one more major covenant in the Old Testament, and it is the covenant between God and David. And we find the record of that covenant primarily in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. But David, we are told in those books, was a man after God's own heart. In fact, uh, last week, whenever we were in Cuba, a couple weeks ago now, um, the theme of the conference for the missionaries was seeking, seeking someone after God's own heart, another person who would have the kind of heart that David had. Now, if you've read First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, you know that David was not perfect. In fact, he was really far from perfect. He, he was an adulterer. He murdered somebody to cover up his adultery, and yet God said, this is a man after my heart. And the reason for that is when David did sin, he confessed it. He admitted it. He didn't try to hide it. And then he repented. He turned away from it, and the relationship with God was restored. But probably my favorite statement about David in all of those scriptures is found in an incident that happened when David wasn't even king of Israel. In fact, David was um, anointed to be the king of Israel while King Saul, the first king of Israel, was still the king. And David um, had to run away because Saul wanted to kill David because Saul wanted his son Jonathan to be king rather than David, even though Saul knew and everybody in Israel knew that God had chosen David. So David ran away, and he collected an army of people who wanted to be with him, about 300 by the time of the incident I'm going to talk about right now. And those 300 men actually went to the land of the Philistines, who were the archenemy of the Israelites. 
And one day the Israelites and the Philistines were going to go to war. And David had been serving under one of the kings of the Philistines, and there were five. But one of the kings, um, you know, David was there, and he said, I'm ready to go to battle against Israel. And the king was ready to have him. But the rest of the king said, are you guys, are you crazy? If they go to battle, if David goes to battle with us in the midst of the battle, he's going to turn against us. And then how better for him to reestablish his ties with Israel? And so they forced David to go back home and not be part of the battle, which was providential for David because once you battle against your own country, how are you going to be the king of that country? So he goes home, and as they get home to Ziklag, the town where they were living, it's burned to the ground. And all of their wives and children have been carried off along with all of their goods by the Amalekites, another enemy of the Israelites. And so here's the situation. There are 300 men who have lost their wives, their children, and everything they own. And they hold David responsible for it. And so these 300 men are ready to kill David. Can you imagine? Put yourself in that. You're you're standing there. 300 armed soldiers are ready to put you to death. What do you do? And, And here's what it says. It says, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In other words, seeing almost certain annihilation at the hands of his own soldiers... He turns to God, and he gets strengthened because of his faith in God. That's why David is a man after God's own heart. And it's things like that that show us that even for all of his failures, even all of his shortcomings, David truly is a person who loves God, who believes in God, who has faith in God. And so God, when he establishes David as king, he gives David a promise. Here's the covenant. The covenant is one of your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And so God keeps that promise, even though most of David's descendants were not good people. In fact, of all the kings of Judah, only eight of them were good kings. And the majority of them, the vast majority of them were bad. And yet God kept his promise, and he kept his promise, and he kept his promise up until the time when Jesus came. And Jesus is a descendant of David. And Jesus, interesting, because Jesus is a a human being. In human terms, he's a descendant of David. But in divine terms, he's the God of David. So he's both David's God and David's offspring. And so Jesus becomes the king who comes onto the throne of Israel in a spiritual way at this moment. But one day he's going to come back and he's going to be established as king of kings and lord of lords on this earth forever. So what we see is even when we're in the Old Testament, everything ultimately, when we look at the big picture of the Old Testament, even there, Jesus is at the center. Because all of the prophecies of the Old Testament point towards a coming king, a suffering servant, a deliverer, somebody who would reestablish Israel, somebody who would um, put together a messianic reign, a, a time when there would be peace on the entire earth. And all of those prophecies point to Jesus. Even as we said, Genesis 3.15, who's going to crush the head of the serpent? It's going to be Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And that's what the big picture of the Old Testament demonstrates. Now, here's here's the powerful truth of that. If all the Old Testament points to Jesus and all the New Testament is about Jesus, then what have we done with Jesus? Who is Jesus to us? 
Is he king of kings? Is he Lord of lords? Is he savior in our lives? And I already said this during the Lord's Supper, but if you're here today, you're watching online, and you have never trusted Jesus as your king, you have never trusted Jesus as your Lord, as your savior, today is the best moment to do that. Because from this moment forward, you can serve him and you can have the power of his spirit in your life. If you've never done that, let's take a moment right now and let's pray. And let's ask him to become king and Lord. Heavenly Father, we do simply pray for anyone in this room, anybody watching online who right now is ready to say, I'm a sinner. I confess that I I have not followed the ways of God. Anyone who's ready to say, Jesus, come into my life, take over. I trust you. I have faith in you. And please, I, I want that to be righteousness in my life. I want your blood shed to wash away my sins and I want your death on the cross to pay the penalty of my sin and make me righteous in in the sight of God. God, I pray for anyone in this room right now. I I thank you for them and and anyone watching online. I thank you, God, for their transfer of ownership to you. I welcome them in, in the name of Jesus as a member of the family and God, we pray your blessing upon them and I pray for all of us, God, that we might serve you faithfully today and tomorrow and every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So today's commitment is a little different than usual. If you're new here, we have a commitment every week, something that we want to go out and put into action uh, as we go out into the world. And it's, it's very specific, very achievable by all of us. It says this, I will read Genesis 1 to 12 this week and live into my kingdom purpose. I will read Genesis 1 to 12 this week and live into my kingdom purpose. This book has 1,189 chapters. I didn't actually know that until I watched the graphic before the message. Um, If you round it up to 1,200, 12 12 chapters would be 1%, I believe. I think my math is right on that. Okay, so I'm asking you to read 1% of the Bible this week. In the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis will give us the opportunity to see that God is the creator the opportunity to see that we have turned against him and the fall happened, the opportunity to see how sin expanded and the opportunity to see how the flood happened and what happened after that and to see that even after the flood, human beings really didn't get a lot better because almost immediately we decided to make a name for ourselves rather than for God. And so God uh, spread the nations over the planet and confused our languages. But then in chapter 12 is the promise of this new people Um, under Abraham, Abram at the time in chapter 12. Now, I'm going to tell you ahead of time, if you start reading Genesis 1, it'll be interesting. 2 is interesting. 3 is interesting. 4 is interesting. Chapter 5, not so much. Um, Chapter 5 is about this person begat that person, begat the other person. If you use King James, it'll be begat. If you use a newer translation, it'll just say, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so for like ever. Okay? So, If you don't want to read chapter 5, I give you permission to skip to chapter 6, all right? Then you're going to get to chapter 10. You're going to get to chapter 10, more of that, more of that. So I give you permission to skip chapter 10 and go to chapter 11 because chapter 11 and chapter 12 are very interesting as well. Did I just say that part of the Bible is boring? Yes, I think I did. Okay, now some of you love genealogies and you think that's the most interesting chapter in Genesis, Good for you, but it's not me, okay? Um, and so if I, what I'm trying to get you to do is read the Bible. And I don't want you to stop because chapter 5 is boring. Or chapter, in fact, this is a good principle. If you come to a boring chapter in the Bible, skip it and go to the next one. 
It's a, I mean, maybe that's not God's principle. It's Chris Marshall's principle, all right? But it works for me. Uh, actually, I go ahead and just skim through them so I can say I read it, right? You can get credit, right? But the bottom line is, the bottom line is, I, there are certain chapters that, I mean, I have, I have focused dozens and dozens of hours, hundreds of hours reading the Bible in my lifetime, and I've read, you know, the, the four Gospels more than I've read any other books. And I'm, I'm biased that way. Maybe you will be. Maybe for you, Genesis 5 will be that book, that chapter for you. I'd really like to meet you if it is. But, but anyway, um, it probably won't be. So the point is, easy commitment this week. Read 12 chapters, Genesis 1 through 12. And what does it say? And live into your kingdom purpose. Because in chapter 1, it tells you your kingdom purpose is to be a co-ruler with God. How awesome is that? We get to be co-rulers with God. So... Let's do that, and let's uh, give God the honor and the praise that he deserves as we, every time we read something that he did, we can say, praise, praise you, God, for that. Praise you for your blessing. Praise you for your goodness. Praise you for your promise. And, and also, God, now I see what I have to do, um, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, I, I, I'm going to do it.